During our time here over this last week, um, I've heard something about um, uh, my real life, you know, and I'm thinking, well, if your real life is is in your daily life, then what is this, one's fake life, you know? <laughs> or I've heard about um, one's life out there, you know? And the op- opposite of that, of course, is one's life in here. And when we make these kinds of divisions, it's just the way we talk, so, you know, no problem. But when internally we believe this and we make these kinds of divisions... In a way, we are inwardly fragmenting, and we're not seeing the reality, which is that the Dharma is the Dharma wherever we are. So can we make our real life be right here and now wherever we are? And that really is our great invitation right now, is to see if we can move into a very different set of conditions for most of us. You know, we come into this set of conditions, and right from day one, we're encouraging you to appreciate the conditions, you know, which for some are truly appreciated right from the beginning, and for for many feel somewhat, um, there's some sense of deprivation or um, too much structure or this or that. It takes time to appreciate them. So, you know, pointing out the wonderful conditions of the silence, luxuriating in the silence, um, the fact that we're all here for the same purpose, so there's this beautiful, beautiful sense of sangha, that our food just comes, you know, just arrives, and we haven't had to do anything to um, prepare it, um, you know, so on and so forth. The sitting and the walking, um, you know, the beginning is so difficult, and then as the retreat goes on, we're thinking, ah, but I'm not going to have this kind of support once I leave here. So our kind of attitude or feelings about the conditions begin to change, um, you know, once we see that we're not going to have this kind of support anymore. Um, There can be eagerness to go home, you know, thinking about all the nice things that one can engage in at home. There can be anxiety and fear about going home. There can be concern about going home. Um, But what is most important to remember is that we can practice wherever we are, and indeed we need to practice wherever we are. So whatever the conditions are, to see if it can be a practice invitation or a practice opportunity. Looking to see, how can I practice with this very set of conditions? Because otherwise we're lost in... You know, when we're on retreat, we want to be off retreat. When we're off retreat, we want to be on retreat. And we're constantly going between one of the two. We're like more discontented than before we began the practice. Because now we have a new option in our life. (laughs) So, you know, I I wish I were other than here. I wish I were on retreat when I'm off. I wish I were off retreat when I'm on. And how about I wish I were here? You know, how about I wish I were here? And then... Not that being um, a, a condemnation, you know, but really an invitation in because we can only be here. We just don't know it. You know, we are here. Inevitably, we are here. You know, it's how things are from moment to moment. But a lot of the time, we just forget to awaken to this fact. Such a wonderful practice. Forget the methods. Forget the techniques. Forget you know everything. Such a wonderful way of being in life to simply know where you are. To just know, ah, sitting is occurring right now, standing is occurring right now, walking is occurring right now, lying down is occurring right now, moving between sitting and walking is happening right now, looking around and experiencing the air against our skin, being aware of the sounds, the sounds of the birds, the sound of traffic, you know, the sound of, of people talking, um, you know, being aware of our environment, and over and over again, noticing um, how we can only be right here. And in this way, what comes about is really an enormous degree of spaciousness. 
whether things are difficult or easy or comfortable or uncomfortable, there is a spaciousness within the heart because we can only be here. And in being aware of being here, of being aware of the environment, of, of, the, of the here and now, um, we can settle in and allow for life to reveal itself to us. We don't have to reach out so much and always feel impoverished, like we're just missing the boat. No, we can settle back over and over again, settle back and allow life to reveal itself to us. A couple of tips, because tips are helpful, I think, in moving from a very simple environment in which a lot has been learned into our everyday life. One really um, important thing, perhaps, to remember is that we always have our feet. In other words, we can always be aware of our feet touching the floor. And it sounds like it's nothing. It sounds like, where's the esoteric teaching? But actually, being aware of one's feet touching the floor more and more and more throughout the day is a way to ground oneself in the here and now. It's a way to calm our hearts and be able to be more present in our interactions, to be able to be more present for ourselves and for others in the complexity of relationship, which is often what is most different in this context than in our everyday life, is the whole arena of talking and interaction and the strong emotions and feelings that arise out of that. And so very simply, just simply to feel our feet touching the floor over and over again is a way to call us back to ourselves so that we can indeed remember that ancient echo. We've heard it here. We've heard it here. And we want to continue to allow ourselves to hear it. We can only hear it when we're quiet enough. And allowing ourselves to be aware of our feet touching the floor is a way to be quiet enough to hear it even in the midst of activity and relationship and horns blaring and things happening. Another thing is making sure that we sit every day, even if it's for a very short amount of time. Just making sure that we find this oasis in the midst of complexity because it is truly a saving grace. I mean, it is such an invaluable thing to know that we can sit. And oftentimes we go home and we know we can sit, but we don't sit. And then there's a way of undermining ourselves. And so to have perhaps very modest aspirations in terms of how long we're going to sit, not to set up a great deal of expectation about it, and at the same time, to see it as essential to sanity in our life. It really is the foundation of a sane life because it's a way in which we're putting our bodies behind our aspirations. We're not just thinking and um, having great ideals and this and that. And it's, it's not so easy to be mindful in the midst of our daily life unless we have the sitting practice as a way to actually stop and remember and physically not react. And we've, we've spoken about not reacting because of the physicality. The sitting itself is a way of non-reactivity because even though our minds might be all over the place and we're reacting wildly and vividly, at the same time, our bodies are quiet, our bodies are still. And so we're learning through our bodies. You know, we're allowing, actually allowing the stillness and calmness in the body to teach our minds and to teach our hearts. And this is such a powerful thing to do. Women for over 2,500 years have, um, have sat. We have sat. We have sat. And so we can really bring this into our everyday life. Important in the sitting to refrain from evaluating and deciding it was a good sitting or a bad sitting or a worthwhile sitting or why am I doing it because I wasn't there until the alarm went off anyway. 
it is worth it. It is different than napping. It's truly different than anything else to sit and to have that intention to be awake and aware, whether that is fulfilled or not. I mean, this is where we really want to let go of expectation is to not evaluate and yet sit with the intention not to plan dinner. You know, planning dinner might arise, but we don't get into it. And so there's that clarity of intention that is really guiding us from moment to moment. And at the same time, as I said, it's so easy to, in the middle of it, think it's not worth it because it's not the way it is here. There isn't as um, much clarity, perhaps, and there perhaps isn't quite as much steadiness. And so it's very easy to judge ourselves and think that it's not worth it. It is so worth it. Whatever it is that happens in the sitting, even if one is not present at all, it's actually still worth it. I mean, I can just tell you from my early days of practice when I really you know, looked like I was there and was completely never there, actually. In my memory, I, I probably am exaggerating, but my memory of this is I was never there. And yet, in spite of myself, in spite of myself, I began to settle down. The heart began to steady itself and, of course, were able to be more and more present as, as we develop in the practice. In the beginning, you know, for those of you who are here for the first time, in the beginning, the sitting is a little bit more of a discipline than a love. But if we can just get ourselves to sit down, it can turn into a love. It can kind of invite us in, whereas if we don't get ourselves to sit down, then it can't do that. So in the beginning, it turns, it starts as a discipline, and then it turns into a love. And so I think working with these two, the the discipline and the love, are both really important. In our daily life, in moving into situations which are much more busy for many of us, much more interaction, many more responsibilities, phone calls and emails and you know, so much more to do. Very, very helpful to focus more on knowing what we're doing than on doing itself. You know, we can get so caught in the particular activity and then always wonder, am I doing what I want to be doing? Am I doing what's the right thing to do? Should I be doing something else? And so we're doing what we're doing, but we're also intensely concerned about something else. And so to know what we're doing, to know that doing is occurring, is actually a great saving grace. In the middle of doing, if we focus on the doing it's itself, on the activity itself, we can be caught in worry and anxiety, or we can be caught in the pursuit of pleasure you know, as an end unto itself and always kind of feeling like we're missing something. Whereas we're always at home with ourselves if we are focused on knowing what we are doing. I mean, even just that one phrase, know what you are doing, knowing what we are doing, it's such a huge difference between being absorbed into the activity itself. So making our home in the knowing making our home in awareness over and over again. I do think, though, that um, looking at how busy we are at times and whether it is absolutely, totally necessary, which at some points in our life it is, it definitely is, but other times it becomes an addiction and it becomes a way for us to um, abandon ourselves and kind of still look societally um, appropriate. You know, because in this culture, it, it is um, seen as a really, really good thing. You know, we're more popular when we're busy, or we, we seem it anyway. Um, it's a strange thing, the cultural ideals. Um, in Sri Lanka, there's this word, Nikan Inawa, which means to just be. And it seems to be the country motto, to just be. Whereas I would say here, it's to do, you know, is our, our country's motto. And perhaps bringing both together is, is really wonderful to do, of course, and to also understand the value of just being. And, and in this environment, of course, there's nothing else to do other than just be, and we understand it and we love it, and we um, perhaps can look at that in our daily life as well. 
Now, when are we overly engaged in action? And is it possible to bring more balance into our life, to see what we're compensating for, and instead to just be... Something um, that I think is really, really helpful in our continuing with the practice in our everyday life is making sure that we have others to practice with. And I know that here in this room there are a number of communities. It's always so great during the women's retreat. You know, there's the New Jersey Sangha, raise your hands. There, <laughs> Spotlight on you. <laughs> there's the Wisconsin Sangha coming every year. You know, there's the huge, um, huge number of CIMC Sangha sisters. Um, you know, there's different Sanghas that, that come And um, because of this, um, you know, there's a way in which it's possible to connect up and to sit with others. I think it's so essential to have sangha, sisters and and brothers to sit with, you know, to to know that practicing with one another is so enormously strengthening and helps us and reminds us. And you have to be creative about these things, you know. I was speaking in the question and answer about use the phone book to find a center, and I'm thinking there's really not very many centers in this country. <laughs> you know, it's really rare that there's a, a center, especially of this lineage in this country. Um, but what there is, um, there are always people in one's area that um, are practicing. And so to to find these people and then to connect up with these people, I think, is really, really important to have Dharma buddies to practice with and to be creative about how that happens. As well, to um, work with something, some subject or another. You know, for, for everyone at CIMC, you have this constant homework, mindfulness homework, and people have been known if they're in different classes or whatever to have, you know, sometimes three kinds of homework per week that has to be juggled. But... Um, you know, the, the idea is to choose something to be attentive to. If you're not working in a group already, to choose something, to take on something to bring mindfulness to. So it could be um, something like, you know, patience, really working with patience for a week, a month, a year, taking that on and really, you know, seeing all the nuances of it, being aware, of course, of impatience. Um, with patients, working with patients, taking on, for instance, wise speech, because this is an area that is always possible to um, to work more with, causes you know great suffering as well as it can be such a great amount of joy to connect through speech. So to take on something like wise speech and maybe just one area of wise speech, because that's such a complex area. Um, of the Dharma, but just maybe one area of wise speech, and then to take that on for a week, a month, a year. Perhaps taking on resistance, you know, resistance to being present, or um, resistance to connection, or whatever it might be. Taking on self-judgment, noticing every moment, vowing to notice every moment of self-judgment for an entire day, you know, which is probably enough. <laughs> and then I think the next day you have to vow again, you know. I wouldn't suggest taking on self-judgment for a year. You know, it's hard. But, you know, taking on something and then not with project mentality of I'm doing this because I need to fix myself, you know, as if we're objects that constantly need fixing, but instead because we see that different areas in our life are, are, um, are, are suffering, you know. And so for the sake of compassion, which is really different than seeing ourselves as objects that need to be fixed, for the sake of compassion, noticing particular areas and then dedicating ourselves to that one area, whatever it might be, and then over and over again working with that one area. Because to say be awake all the time, yeah, you know, that's, that is the practice and that is what we're trying to do. Um, so it's not to negate that. And at the same time, to take up something specifically um, is an enormously valuable and helpful thing to do. 
remembering the difference between practicing with a willfulness, with a will of mind, and practicing with a willingness. So being aware of resistance and seeing if we can move from willfulness to a willingness to be present and noticing our resistance to doing so. Noticing our the difference between wanting to control and the willingness to connect. So being aware, and this is such an interesting area in everyday life, you know, being uh, wanting to control ourselves and others and the world around us. It's it's a it's so rich to look at this and to look at the various areas and and to notice it. So to be aware of of the tendency to want to control, and then using that as a guide into the willingness to connect. And noticing as well, of course, our habit of self-condemnation and seeing if we can bring endless and huge and vast and measureless kindness into everything, into everything. It is our greatest ally, our greatest power to use the metta practice. I know so many of us love the metta and have really connected with the metta. So continuing to really use it as an ally, as a power. And um, just the suggestion to continue with the metta as you go to sleep at night. You know, just that, even if it's just one round of the metta phrases or two, you know, two, <laughs> maybe even three, you know, to, to continue with that in, when one wakes up in the morning as well. So um, just one thing about as you as you leave, someone asked a question about leaving. And um, you know, um, if you can stay through lunch, it would be a great idea to kind of come out in a quieter way and talk with, with others before you leave, kind of to move out in a gentle way. And um, just to take it easy, you know, when you begin to talk, you don't have to say everything all at once because you haven't been. It can go a little slower than that. Um, you know, being aware of sometimes strong emotions arise at the end of a retreat and see if there can be the awareness of those strong emotions, again, remembering to connect with your feet. So just to take it easy and to be aware of the totality of things, especially when you start to leave and you get in your car, you know, be aware of um, it's not the real world versus the fake world here. And, you know, to be mindful of, of red lights and important things like that as one gets into a car. No body, no practice. So it's, it's, it's really quite important. So just my great gratitude. I'm endlessly inspired and heartened by the dedication in this room to the practice. And um, to those of you that I... I see just once a year. See you next year, I hope. And um, to the uh, CIMC Bodhisattvas here, see you at home. I just want to end with a, with a poem. It's called The Peace of Wild Things by Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Many thanks. Uh, Just on a practical note, we were going to let you know that this retreat next year is March 18th to 26th. So you won't miss St. Patrick's Day. When we began the retreat, I spoke a little bit about this word bhavana, or bringing into being. What we bring into being in the moment, what we bring into being in our life. 
And I think it's very useful to just acknowledge that um, any of the kind of benefits of this practice that you've experienced this week, any of the moments of calmness, the moments of understanding, the moments of loving kindness, the moments of intimacy, of appreciation, I think it's very helpful to acknowledge that they have been brought into being. And brought into being not by someone else or not just through the support of the various forms that we have, but they have been brought into being through our own intentions and efforts. And this, to me, understanding this, acknowledging this, is really where confidence in ourselves and our practice is really born. To understand what we do bring into being consciously and sometimes what comes into being unconsciously. But in a way almost to reclaim that capacity to bring into being, I think is a source of tremendous inspiration in our lives and also in the moments when we forget. You know, because just like our retreat here is not a kind of linear progression and development, but a path of valleys and peaks, uh, so too in our life there are moments when we are remembering very well and moments when we are forgetful. But I think what we really what is born of confidence in the practice is that moments of forgetfulness don't become moments of impossibility. You know, we don't think, oh, I blew it and I've lost it forever and that's it. You know, now I have a life sentence of this, isn't it? We say, ah, it's forgetfulness. I forgot something too important to forget. But born of knowing our capacity to bring that which is beneficial into being, we are almost able to reclaim that in moments of forgetfulness. Now this bringing into being, of course, is very much born of intention. And, you know, listening to you in the group last night, talking about, you know, your journey on this path over many years, you know, many years of coming here, many years of us being together. And, you know, the way you speak about the changes that have come in your life, come in yourself, greater capacity to meet your life, to find balance, to embrace the difficult, to celebrate the joyful. You know, tracking that over the years, you know, and I... I feel very privileged also to have been part of also your journey, participating in that journey with you over these years. And it is always, I certainly notice the changes. You know, the the changes that you speak of are actually very visible. You know, there is a maturing in our practice that comes about through really the dedication to our intention the dedication to our intention of knowing what we value, knowing what is important, knowing what's important to cultivate and what makes a difference in our life. And somehow if we have that dedication, our life begins to shape itself around that. Um, I think I confessed to you last year that I used to be a crisis gym user, you know, who went attempting to do this thing that's supposed to be good for me whenever things had fallen apart, you know, I was in bad shape, you know, and how what hard work it was all the time, you know, and envying these young things and their lycra and all that stuff. <laughs> anyway, I'm very happy to say that I am no longer a crisis gym user. I'm a sustained gym user. <laughs> At least for the moment. Very aware this could change once more. 
what I notice is this movement from crisis to sustain. That's why I mentioned it. It's a little bit of pride here, I have to tell you. But uh, I notice that this movement from crisis to sustained is actually very important in every area of our life. Like it's easy. Somehow, you know, when we're in crisis, you know, we suddenly get this new thought. I should practice. You know, I should go on retreat, you know. I have to find a way to deal with this. You know, it's a crisis meditation. You know, and it doesn't last, does it? You know, we get over the crisis and then we think, oh, I don't really need to do that anymore. Um, but moving into that sustained, I think there is something about, yes, we, sometimes we come to the practice out of suffering, out of pain, out of the need to embrace pain. Sometimes we come to the practice out of joy and out of happiness. You know, it doesn't always have to be about fixing something or altering something, about changing something. Sometimes our practice is about celebrating our capacity to be, celebrating our capacity for stillness, for calmness, for seeing more deeply. I think sometimes when we get those little pieces of joy in our practice, it's very much easier to sustain you know, and if our practice is only kind of pain-motivated, it's often not sustainable because somehow practice gets associated with pain. You know, like, that's what I do when I'm in pain. I don't know if it's associated with joy, associated with happiness, associated with well-being. Bringing into being, knowing what we are bringing into being. You know, the Buddha talks so much in this tradition about how intention really is the forerunner of all things. That it's the forerunner of wise attention. It's a forerunner of the kind of words we speak, the acts we engage in, the choices we make. And yet, you know, wise attention does mean moving out of this field of impulse and habit to know what this moment is dedicated to. You know, it's like we've been practicing here. You know, what is this sitting dedicated to? What is this walking dedicated to? What is this sitting or walking in the service of? So too in our life. What is this day dedicated to? What is this conversation dedicated to? What is this choice dedicated to? To somehow bring into the forefront of our life the quality of our intentionality, which is different than a plan. You know, that's different than a plan. Our intentionality is more about our attitude. You know, when the... When the Buddha talked about wise intention, it, it made it really simple. You know, the intentions of loving kindness, the intentions of compassion, the intens- intentions of renunciation. So we need. And, you know, to have those intentions somehow at the forefront of our relationship to our life actually also is our path. You know, that is our path. You know, what are we bringing into being in our life? Born of the intentions that we bring to our life. Now, for those, I think sometimes for that intentionality to be um, conscious, aware, obviously it does rely upon some dedication, just like we've experienced that our practice and deepening our practice here relies on some dedication. It relies upon our willingness to find some places of calm in our life and to cultivate places of calm where there is no calm. And sometimes that intentionality, for our intentionality to be very kind of at the forefront in our life also does involve some letting go. You know, most of us, there is a powerful relationship between simplicity and letting go. You know, we long for simplicity, but we don't necessarily long to let go. You know, we don't necessarily long to put down what is not needed, to put down what is extra, to put down sometimes the ways that we think that we're, uh, I think we're taking care of ourselves, but that it's a muddled loving kindness. You know, I, I think sometimes, you know, perhaps if our life feels stressed or, you know, there's been a great deal to, to be with, 
we think, oh, I'll just take care of myself. I think I'll turn on the TV. But it might be, sometimes that might be appropriate, but sometimes it's muddled loving kindness. It's not really caring for our well-being. It's caring for a way of numbing out. And sometimes, you know, renunciation's not a harsh thing. You know, letting go is a joyful thing. What don't we need? What don't we need? What can we put down? Where can we make just a little bit more space in our life, a little bit more space in our hearts, a little bit more space in our minds, so that we can attend to what is truly important? You know, when Michelangelo was asked how he would go about carving an elephant, he said, I take a big block of stone, I take away everything that's not the elephant. So it's kind of looking, what's not the elephant? What is not the elephant? Again, this is a journey. You know, I think we should never take these things like letting go or loving kindness or compassion as commands, as some new spiritual right way to be. But just see this as a journey, as a journey of investigation that really rests on the very heart of this teaching. You know, that there is suffering and there is an end to suffering. And our journey is looking at what brings an end to suffering. Acknowledging that this is not only for our own well-being, the well-being of those who are close to us, for the well-being of those that we interface with in our life, for the well-being of our world. You know, and, and certainly when we, you know, look at our world, it's very easy to feel disheartened and despairing, the levels of fear and anger and violence and conflict and separation and division sometimes very hard to imagine where there is an end. But I think we hold in our hands the capacity to understand what we are participating in. You know, are we participating in small or large ways in the perpetuation of separation and conflict and fear? Or are we participating in small and large ways in the deepening of loving kindness, of compassion, of letting go, of protection. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the greatest illnesses, I think, in our cultures is that we can feel so powerless to affect change. And yet, to think that we must affect all change makes change impossible. To think that we can affect the changes of the moment makes change something and transformation something very possible. You know, Stephen Batchelor, a friend of mine, once said that we cannot achieve awakening for ourselves, but we can participate in the awakening of all beings. This is very powerful to participate in the awakening of all beings, including ourselves. Because if there ever is, uh, you know, any kind of transformation of, in our world, it is really born within the hearts and minds of individuals who treasure that transformation, you know, who treasure the compassion, who treasure the reconciliation, who treasure the understanding. And this is something that, of course, is in our hands. Nourishment, nourishment, you know, nourishing our heart, nourishing our path, nourishing our way. As Narayan mentioned, being in community with others. But the many ways of nourishment that are available to us, you know, we can read, we can reflect, we can listen to teachings, but not to believe that we do not need that nourishment. You know, if nobody watered these plants in this room, they would die. That's a simple reality, you know. And, you know, the way of our own path and the way of our own understanding also relies upon nourishment, being taken care of. And, you know, sometimes 
you know, inspiration is a very important part of our practice. You know, we, we need to feel inspired. You know, and certainly we're fe- we, we feel inspired by, you know, when we see changes and important shifts happening within ourselves. Yes, we feel inspired by that. But we can be inspired by others. You know, we can be inspired by listening to teachings. And that inspiration is like a little spark. It really makes a difference. It really, in a way, kind of is part of that nourishment um, and that dedication that is born of that nourishment. Restraint is an interesting thing I'd just like to touch on briefly. You know, although we... we um, you know, don't necessarily talk a lot about this at the beginning of the retreat for fear that people would immediately pack their bags and leave. Um, we actually do practice a lot of restraint here. Have you noticed? You know? All of us practice a lot of restraint here. We practice a lot of restraint around food. We practice restraint about around speaking. We practice restraint about around some of our, you know, desires to suddenly just go off and, you know, go to sleep. You know, we practice restraint around our reactions. And isn't it interesting that somehow, you know, that word restraint is not a big one in our culture, Um, but it's something very powerful. You know, restraint that is born out of care, restraint that is born out of respect. But, you know, I can't tell you how much the Buddha talked about restraint and, you know, guarding the sense doors, not in a defensive way, but not being a hungry ghost, not being a hungry ghost in our life, learning that actually restraint is sometimes a path to opening something to something deeper. You know, I think so often our association with restraint is that it's a kind of punishment or a way of depriving ourselves of something. But restraint as a way, an opening to something deeper. And, you know, I think it is a powerful practice and a powerful teaching in our life to actually cultivate, at times, restraint, carefulness, mindfulness, in a way they could all, all those words could be used interchangeably. Sensitivity, compassion, all of these words, all of these qualities actually do have something to do with restraint. Not as punishment, but as generosity. And that's an interesting, you know, a different way of seeing restraint. That sometimes it is an act of generosity to ourselves and to the world around us. Again, I would really very genuinely like to offer my thanks to Narayan, to Linda, to Madi, to all of you for the tremendous sincerity of your practice. It is an absolute joy every year to be with you. It's an absolute joy to come to this retreat. It is lovely in the beginning, and it's lovely in the middle, and it is lovely in the end. So, again, my thanks for me. So, if we end just with a short dedication of our practice, just taking our seat for a few moments, quietly, calmly. Resting in your body. Resting in the company of those around you. Resting in your own heart, in the stillness of the moment. And offering to yourself a deep sense of appreciation and acknowledgement and honoring of all of the effort, the intention, the dedication you brought to these days. Appreciating the ways that you have supported others through your silence, through your practice, the ways that you have been supported and encouraged 
by the silence and the practice of those around you. Offering that sense of appreciation, of honoring to each woman in this room for their heartfelt dedication, commitment, for bringing into this time together the the loveliness of their being. Offering that sense of appreciation to everyone in the building, those we see and those we don't see, all of those who serve here, who so much support our practice, our journey. Offering that sense of appreciation to all those people in our lives, in the past and the present, who've somehow eased our way into being here, made it possible for us to be here. With gratitude for their support, their encouragement. Whatever benefits are born of our practice, may they contribute to the well-being the happiness, the freedom of ourselves. Whatever benefits are born of our practice, may they contribute to the happiness, the well-being, the freedom of all those people in our lives. Whatever benefits are born of our practice that come into being, may they serve to ease the distress, the suffering, the conflict of those that we know and those that we don't know. Dedicating whatever benefits come into being of our practice to the well-being of all beings, to the happiness, to the peace, to the easing of sorrow of all beings. May all beings be safe and protected. May all beings be peaceful. May all beings live with ease. And we'll end with the mid-morning chanting. Anichawata Sankara Anichawata Sankara Uparawaya Damino Uparawaya Damino Upakituwa Niruchanti Upakituwa Niruchanti Desam Vupasamo Suko Anichawata Sankara Anichawata Sankara Uparawaya Damino Uparawaya Damino Upakituwa Niruchanti Upakituwa Niruchanti Desam Vupasamo Suko Anichawata Sankara Anichawata Sankara Upadawaya Damino Upadawaya Damino Upakituwa Niruchanti Upakituwa Niruchanti Desam Vupasamo Suko All conditioned things are impermanent. Their nature is to arise and pass away. To be in harmony with this truth 
brings true happiness. Nati me saranam maniam Nati me saranam maniam Budo me saranam varam Budo me saranam varam Ate na Soti me ho tu sabada. Soti me ho tu sabada. Nati me saranam maniam. Nati me saranam maniam. Damo me saranam varam. Damo me saranam varam. Ate na Soti me ho tu sabada. Soti me ho tu sabada. Nati me saranam maniam. Nati me saranam maniam. Sango me saranam varam. Sango me saranam varam. Etena sachawajena. So ti me ho tu sabada. So ti me ho tu sabada. The Buddha is my refuge. The Dharma is my refuge. The Sangha is my refuge. Nothing else is my refuge. By the power of this truth, may I at all times be blessed. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.